Welcome to the teaching ministry of Steve Franklin. Steve's calling is to coach champions in the kingdom of God. Our prayer for you as you listen to this word of encouragement and instruction is that you'll be built up in your faith and encouraged to take the next step in your development as one of God's true champions. Here's Steve. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask you in Jesus' name to make me a faithful steward of your word that I may rightly divide the word of truth and that that spirit of rightly dividing the word of truth would extend from this shepherd servant to all who would hear and receive. We thank you for those who are now listening all over the world that you have designed and we pray that that word would do a mighty work. We know some of them, Lord, are listening to these messages where they legally can't assemble, where they legally can't propagate the Word of God. Bless them, O God. Give them a spirit of insight and courage. Minister to them in their suffering. Lord, open the eyes of our heart and forgive us for taking you and your Word for granted. Forgive us, God, for not making the worship of you our priority. Forgive us for just working you in when we feel like it. Forgive us for that, Jesus. May the top priority of every day be the recognition that you are Lord and that all that we are and all that we have comes from you, Lord Jesus. And I ask you to let that begin in me. In the precious holy name of Jesus, amen and amen. Well, we're on a very unusual Assignment here, I normally uh, speak quite often on very practical issues in our lives, uh, usually some pretty deep stuff. And last Sunday, and I didn't know how you received it, some of you this is not your favorite, and I understand that. So a few of you have told me that has, has really blessed you, but the title of this short series is learning how to discern difficult passages. Would you turn with me, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. There are outlines there. Uh, the, the first one set, that says session 1 and 2 on it, discerning difficult passages, that is a repeat from last week. Many of you were not here on the holiday weekend. The second one I want everybody to receive because it is different from the second page that you received last week. And um, Johnny, uh, Otis, if you would pass that second page, exercises in discerning difficult passages out to anyone who may not have received it. Thank these deacons for helping me this morning. We'll give them just a moment. First Timothy chapter 2. I confessed to you last week that there are a few passages in Holy Scripture, and I've been studying it for a long, long time, both 
individually in my own quiet, practical, individual life, and I have studied it corporately in fields of higher learning and theological seminary. But I can also tell you that you don't know a bit of the truth unless the Holy Spirit opens it to you. You don't understand the Bible unless the Holy Spirit who inspired it and preserved it discloses it to you. But I've got to tell you, there's uh, some passages that have caused me trouble and that I have been troubled by for many years. And uh, last week we read one of them, and we will read it and then add one to it uh, today. And it has to do with God's daughters, females in the church. We read there, we read last week beginning in verse 8, and I'm not going to go back and repeat a lot of it. I'm just going to hit the highlights. Please go to the website and listen to this teaching in depth if you desire to know more. Verse 11 says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not, Paul speaking here to, the, to Timothy, his young mentoree who was pastoring the church at Ephesus, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they, womanhood, continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. I have often seen and been troubled by this passage and frankly wondered, what does that mean? Now turn back with me to 1 Corinthians, back to the left, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the apostle writing to the church in Corinth. <clears throat> God give us understanding. And in the 14th chapter, beginning with verse 34, let your women keep silence in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Or did the Word of God come originally from you? Was it from you only that it reached? Is any, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. So those are two very difficult passages of Scripture, very difficult to understand. And if you're a member of this faith family, you would immediately, if you just read those, and that's all you read, you would have a problem with some of the decisions that your pastor and spiritual leadership have already made. We've ordained women. We have women 
who lead our praise team. Uh, look, a lot of what makes this church so special to so many of us is made possible by women. Many of them are render service that you don't see. Do you know that the co-founder and the co-pastor of this church is a woman? She's been married to me for 45 years. This church would not exist without her as co-pastor. Her gifts and her roles are different from mine, but no less important than mine. She is an ordained minister of the gospel. Do you know that the most important group in our church, and I tell them this all the time, head, headed by and led by Pastor Joe is our intercessory prayer team. I, we can't succeed without them. I call on them all the time for prayer covering for Dean and me and for you and our church. I call on them all the time, sometimes at all kind of hours for emergencies that rise up in people's needs. The majority of these wonderful servants of the Lord are women. Our praise team, led by women. Sharon's an ordained woman by this church. Do you know we've got a care team here? Deborah Gillum is in amazing in reaching out to you in your time of need. And do you, do you know do you know this lady right here, Becky Estes, sitting here by her husband, Buddy? They were founding members of our. They were here the first Sunday we ever met, back in New Orleans. Uh, New Orleans, back in Mountain Brook. Might as well be New Orleans. <laughs> Do you know that over many, many years, many of you have received in the name of the church remembrances about special events in your life? Sometimes it's been about the birth of a child. Sometimes it's been about the death and passing of a loved one. And it has the church's name on it, but you know it comes from her. She has an incredible ministry. Do you know that I'm going to name deaconesses and mothers of the church? And let me tell you why. And I know some of you are saying, in light of those passages, what are you thinking? A text without a context is a pretext. And so if you were with us last week, we said whenever you find a difficult to understand passage, put a grid on it. Number one, ask the Holy Spirit. Remember, He inspired the writing of the Word of God. 
All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, and correction. Ask the Holy Spirit. We saw this. We won't take time to do it. Go back and get the notes and read the text. John 14, 16, Jesus said, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send you the Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. We found out in John 15 that the Spirit of truth is going to counsel you and guide you. Jesus said, I'm going to leave him. He will be deposited in your life if you believe in me. He is the Spirit of truth. He guides us into all the truth, according to John 16, 13. So ask yourself, Holy Spirit, you wrote the word Help me understand. Guide me into all the truth. That which, it, that which is puzzling to me, give me, you wrote it, help me understand what this means and what it doesn't mean. Don't just say, well, I'm going to give up on that, and that's for somebody else. Say, Holy Spirit, help me to understand. I read this again Uh, last week, and uh, I got a chuckle out of it. This is hilarious to me. The second epistle of Peter, the apostle Peter says, consider the long-suffering of the Lord as salvation as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, listen to this, speaking in them of these things in which some things are hard to understand. That is hilarious to me as a student of the Bible that one of the other apostles, the apostle Peter, would say, this man is a wonderful man. He has written Scripture, but some of the things he says is hard to understand. Three of us like that. All right, now, so the the second question is, does this sound like Jesus? Why? We answered that last week. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have what? So God is exactly like who? Jesus. They're not going to disagree. If you see Jesus, you have seen how the Father thinks and feels and speaks. Jesus said, I only say the things I hear my Father saying. I only do the things I hear, see my Father doing. If, uh, Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the exact image of the Father. He is the visible image of the invisible God. You see Jesus, you see the Father. So here's the question. Does does this passage sound like Jesus? We'll get to that in a minute. Third, when you you come into a difficult passage, always approach the parts from the whole. Don't take a passage that you don't understand and focus and zoom in on it and try to make all of Scripture fit that little part. Ask God to help you see the whole and then to understand the part and how it fits in the whole. I said this last week and we'll say it again. If you isolate some little portion of Scripture, you isolate on that and all you do is obsess over that, you're going to get way out of balance. That's how cults result. Because there's no balance of the whole picture. So, ask the Lord to help you see the parts from the perspective of the whole and focus on what you do know. 
Well, I may not understand this, but I do know that God is love. I do know that God is just and fair and righteous and sovereign. I may look at this and say, what in the world is this talking about? But I do know from the whole of Scripture that my God is merciful and compassionate. He's faithful. Focus on the whole. And when you encounter a difficult, troubling, or confusing passage, I want you to ask, is this a specific message to a specific issue or is this a universal principle without exception? And to do that, you've got to ask, what is the biblical context? If you don't get an answer by what the biblical context is, ask the Lord to help you understand, well, what is the historical context? What, who was this originally addressed to, and what were the issues specific to that? You gotta study if you wanna know, don't you? Amen. That's the reason I'm talking to you because you're mature believers. You're not eating baby food all the time. You want the meat of the word. Amen. That's one reason why this is my favorite pastor uh, responsibility. All right. So we know that all scripture is inspired by God, and so we want to know, Lord, what is it that you mean? What are you trying to say? And so let's. Take these principles now and apply them over the passage we just read. Now, I'm going to skip down through a lot of this because we covered it last week. So the first thing we do is we ask the Holy Spirit, help me understand, Lord, Spirit of truth. Everybody say it with me. Holy Spirit, Spirit of truth, help me to understand what your Word is saying and apply it to my life. So the next question we ask is, does it sound like Jesus? Okay. How many times do you see Jesus going around saying, now, I love all you guys, but I want all you women to keep your mouth shut whenever we're having a meeting? Any? Do you understand that Jesus absolutely changed the culture? It was absolutely against Every rule of culture, both in first century and especially in Jewish culture, for a man to go out there and publicly talk to a woman. Jesus not only went publicly to talk to a woman, he went to the woman at the well who was not exactly of great reputation. Intentionally, he did it. Unashamedly, he did it. I talked to you last week about, and we won't take time to do this, but I talked to you last time about how Jesus' best friends, two out of the three were women, Mary, Martha, their brother Lazarus. He constantly went back to their house on the journeys of his ministry. I talked to you last week about how women formed an integral part of his ministry partnership. Luke 8, 1 and 2 said that there was a group of women. Some of them were professional. Some of them were domesticated. But they were women who loved Jesus. And they followed him in his ministry from town to town. And he not one time is there ever any mention of him saying, Now I want all of you women to stay in the background now. And don't let anybody see you trying to come in here and... Not one time. So here's my question to you as you read these passages I read to you at the beginning. Does this 
sound like Jesus. Jesus' first appearance after the resurrection in person was to a woman, Mary Magdalene. I mean, we could go on and on and on, but we've got to move on. Our next question was, what is the context of scriptures about this particular passage? What does other scriptures have to say? And why are you saying that, Pastor? Because throughout history, throughout history, there has been, culturally speaking, even in the church, there has been a disdain and a disregard and a disrespect for the place of women. Not only their value, but their ability. That has been not only culturally, but it has been religiously propagated. There are mainline denominations to this day who will not allow a woman to have a place of leadership in the church. They are my brothers and sisters. I love them. I'm going to be in heaven with them. But I don't believe in the context of all of Scripture that that's accurate. The context. Look at what the all of Scripture says. Well, we know right from the beginning God created Adam and He created Eve. And the Bible says that He breathed into Adam and Eve the breath of life. That He blessed Adam and He blessed Eve. That He blessed them as a partnership. Why would God allow whole books of the Bible to be named after women? Ruth and Esther. Why would it be God's idea in the Old Testament times for a woman named Deborah to, be, to rule over Israel as a judge for 40 years? If God didn't like or respect women, why would it be that way? Well, a lot of people say, well, I tell you, uh, and I heard this over and over again, and, you know, we'll get to that in a minute. I, I want to show you something else. In the New Testament, I want you to turn with me. We didn't look at these passages last week. I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2. What are we doing now? We're trying to look in the context of Scripture to see if there's any justification for what we read from a surface perspective in 1 Timothy and Corinthians to try to find out what, what, what's going on here, what would be the context of all of Scripture so that we can better understand whether this was a universal concept or this was a specific issue being spoken to. In chapter 2 of Acts, you remember this, how the believers, 120 of them, had all gathered, by the way, there were men and women, gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem, waiting for what Jesus promised would come, and that was the coming of the indwelling, infilling Holy Spirit. And notice what he says there in 17. This is... Verse 16 says, this is what was spoken when the Holy Spirit came and 
fill them with great power to evangelize and fill them with the ability to speak in languages that spoke to all the cultures that had gathered in Jerusalem. 16 says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Do you have to say something to prophesy? How can you be silent and prophesy at the same time? Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And watch this. And on my men servants and on my female, my maid servants, I will pour out of my spirit in those days. And they, men and women, shall prophesy. Shall speak forth the word of God. So does that sound like silence to you? All right, let's go a little further. Go over to Acts 21. Just turn to the right. Go to Acts 21. This account written by Dr. Luke. In Acts 21, we find the historical documentation of the early church through Luke's writings in the book of Acts. And this particular, this particular section is about Paul and some of his ministry compatriots as they were on missionary journeys in the early church. After the conversion of Paul, verse 4, finding disciples, we stayed there seven days entire. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. And then you read down verse 8. On the next day, we who were with Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the evangelist. Remember now, earlier in Acts, he was appointed as a deacon of the church. We entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with them. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And, verse 10, as we stayed many days there, a certain prophet named Agabus came down and prophesied to Paul. Paul was right there staying in the household of Philip who had daughters who had the spiritual gift of prophecy. Wouldn't you think that there'd be some indication there if this was out of bounds for them to do that, that the apostle would have said, now, I sure like the ministry of your daddy, Philip. He's a wonderful evangelist, but you girls need to learn to keep your mouth shut. I, I, I know I'm being a little over the top here, but the subject justifies it. Many have said throughout my learning, my study, Paul had a problem. You just got to overlook Paul now. He had a problem uh, with women. And I said last week, is that accurate with the evidence? Galatians 3.28, written by the Apostle Paul, says, There's neither male nor female in Christ Jesus. They are all one. All one of equal 
value. Paul said that. I want you to turn back with me again to Romans chapter 16, please. Now I'll briefly hit the highlights because we spent time in this last week. This is Paul speaking now to the Roman church. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister. Paul is calling Phoebe a sister. The, he is talking about greeting and with respect those who had helped him minister as he traveled ministering the gospel. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Chintria. Oh my. That word servant in the Greek comes from the root word diakonos, and it means three things in the New Testament. It means servant, but it's primarily meaning is minister and deaconess. Hmm. How about that? Verse 3, greet Priscilla and Aquila. Remember them? I talked to you about this last week. Priscilla and Aquila were co-pastors. They worked and traveled with the apostle all over the Roman Empire, specifically in Corinth and in Ephesus, and they hosted the church in their house. So do you think, do you have any evidence whatsoever with these co-pastors, is there any evidence whatsoever that Paul said, okay now, I, Aquila, you can teach the word, Priscilla, keep your mouth shut in the services. None. He recognized and, and, and respected and put it in Holy Scripture. Look at verse 4. They risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles likewise greet the church that is in their house. And I got to tell you, there was some risk involved in pastoring a church in your house in the first century. Well, we could go on and on. Junia is sometimes, by the translators, put in the masculine, Junias, probably because some of them didn't know exactly what to do with that. And I, I, you know, I don't have an argument with those who refuse uh, to believe that, but uh, Junia was obviously a leader in the church mentioned among the apostles, not the 12 founding apostles, but how many of you know that there is sometimes a difference between the holy office of the original apostles and the gift of apostleship? I've stunned you now. Apostleship, the gift meaning, the ability to take new ground, new territories with the gospel and to oversee other ministry works. And uh, I know there are those in the body of Christ who greatly disagree with me on that, but I am used to that for many years. <laughs> All right, so let's go on. I want you to turn with me to Ephesians 5. I want to show you the most familiar passage that has to do with male and female in the entire New Testament. 
and I want you to just ask, I, I want you to think for just a minute about how extraordinary this was. What are we answering? Did Paul have a problem with women? And I'm trying to show you biblical evidence that that was not the case. In Ephesians chapter 5, I want you to look at verse 25. Husbands, love, the word there is agape, unconditionally love your wives. Value. That word is the same word used for God's kind of love. Can you imagine how radical this was in the first century? Understand that in the first century in Greek culture, in Jewish rabbinical teaching, a woman was basically a non-citizen. She was basically the property of her father or her husband. And now you see the Apostle Paul saying, Husbands, love your wives like Jesus. Love the church. Radical. Radical. And notice, and gave himself up for her. You talk about radical in that culture. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that which he speaks over her. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blame. So, look at verse 28. You want another realm of radical? So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Can't imagine what a radical statement that was. Written by the Apostle Paul to the first century church. Wow. So, okay. If in the biblical context, I begin to see another view, what about these passages that I just read? Okay, let's turn back to them now and wrap this up. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, let's take a look at it. I am going to do something I almost never do. And that is, I want to follow my own advice and I told you sometimes when you look at something from the biblical perspective, if you're still confused about what it means, try to get some understanding of the historical context. Understand this, that in the first century church there were many, many things going on. Understand that when the day of Pentecost had come, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Don't you remember that there were 3,000 people saved in one day on one sermon? And the Bible says, and the church was increasing every day. And then great persecution came, and they spread all over the Roman Empire. Understand that Corinth and Ephesus were epitomes of pagan Greek culture, and religion. 
Understand that they were a that those two cities were havens for cultish, bizarre doctrines that had to do with all kind of squirrely things. And these people who had been radically saved were coming in with all. How many of you know when you're saved, you don't immediately have all of your thought processes and all that you've learned washed out? They were coming into the church with Greek cultish religion. They were coming into the church out of Judaism, and there was a prolific amount in Judaism of what we call rabbinical traditions. That is, that there was taught with scriptural authority by the rabbis things that were traditions and those were put in there along with the Word of God. And now you've got born-again, spirit-filled believers coming in with people from these heathen cultures and from traditional Judaism with all... Can you imagine some of the issues that were in Corinth and Ephesus? That's the background out of which these passages I'm trying to bring to your attention were written. Okay, so let me just read something to you. I, I, I think that one of the greatest students of this issue is Lee Grady. And uh, Lee Grady has written a wonderful book that I recommend to you. It's called Ten Lies the Church Tells Women. It's a great book. Uh, great research. Let me just read something to you here. In their excellent book, I Suffer Not a Woman, Richard and Catherine Clark Kroger explained this, that there was certain culture, cultic worship practices involving female, listen, female priestesses of the Greek fertility god Diana that had invaded the church of the day. These women priests promoted blasphemous ideas about sex and spirituality and they sometimes actually performed rituals in which they pronounced curses on men in an attempt to spiritually emasculate them or to declare female superiority. This teaching most certainly bred unhealthy attitudes among some women in the Ephesian church. These women were completely unlearned. They were spreading false doctrines and in some cases were claiming to be teachers of the law and demanding an audience, most likely mixing Christian and Jewish teachings with these strange heresies and warped versions of Bible stories. Listen to this now. Some even taught that Eve was created before Adam and that she liberated the world when she listened to the snake, the serpent. And because of the spreading of this kind of fables and hoaxes, chaos threatened the church. Some of these rebellious women were actually disrupting worship services so they could teach their strange doctrines. Paul had to bring serious discipline to this situation quickly or the church would have been infected with a deadly virus. 
You have to understand this passage. Remember where it says that women are not to exercise authority over a man. To understand, Bible scholars have noticed the word authentane in the Greek. It has a forceful, extremely negative connotation. The word for authority is usually almost always translated exousia, but there is a different word in the Greek language, which is the language of the New Testament, and it almost always means, this word for authority means to have authority over, and it can be translated to dominate, usurp, or take control. Often in Greek literature, the word was actually associated with violence or even murder. We can assume that because this word in the Greek is used here, the women in the Ephesian church were dominating church meetings, usurping the authority of the church leaders, and proclaiming themselves teachers when they had never been properly taught the Word of God. So Paul called for this to stop. And in essence, he was saying, that's enough. I'm not going to allow these know-it-all women in the, coming from this environment to teach in your church anymore. I am allowing the, nor am I allowing them to overthrow or usurp authority of the leaders I have appointed to you. Are you getting a little insight here about what was going on in the historical context of the passage? Well, Pastor, what about that over there in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, about that you read to us also about women are to be silent in the church? <clears throat> this is a great insight right here. Um, the word speak, I do not allow a woman to speak. The Greek word in this text for speak, in this passage, listen to me English scholars, is the present infinitive form which can be translated continually speaking up. It implies a type of speech that was disruptive, annoying, or shameful. Most likely, there were women in this church who were continually interrupting the teacher to ask questions or possibly disrupt the meeting and usurp the speaker's authority. Now, that, that makes a little more sense there, does it not? Um, look, go to that 1 Corinthians 14 passage, and I want to show you one thing. I think Dina was able to get this in our notes and outlines and uh, this is one of the keys, some scholars say, to interpreting the passage. Now remember, you can either say, no, no, no. The Bible says women are to be silent. They can't have any place of responsibility in the church. And that's just the way it is. We don't understand it, but that's the way it is. And look, there are wonderful people who believe that. And I have great respect for you. I'm not going to get into an argument with you. I just don't agree with that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I want you to notice something that is pointed out. And this is a very interesting 
very interesting observation that uh, has to do with the original language of the New Testament, which of course was Greek. And before, while you got your place there, turn back to uh, chapter 7 for just a second. I want to show you something. This argument, and it makes sense to me, you can take it or leave it, it's up to you. This argument says that in chapter 7 and verse 1, many scholars believe that the passage, the passages after chapter 7 had a lot to do with Paul answering a letter. Look at chapter 7, 1 Corinthians, verse 1. Now, concerning the things of which you wrote to me. You with me? Many believe that in chapter 14, he is now talking about, okay, what did you write to me? Okay, about being single. You wrote to me about um, uh, divorce. You wrote to me about um, Holy Communion. You wrote to me about some of the problems that we're having with Holy Communion in the church. You, talked to, you asked me about uh, the gifts of the Spirit and speaking in tongues and prophesying. You wrote to me about all these things. Now watch here. In 14... It says, do you see verse 36? Do you see verse 36? In the English, you don't have this because in the Greek, there is a punctuation mark. There is no quotation marks in the Greek language. It is a symbol with a long tail on an N with a grave accent on top of it. What that says in the Greek is, the preceding passage is a quotation. And now I'm going to expound on the quotation. So this view is that Paul was answering a question that the Corinthian church with their own specific problems had and should be in quotations, verse 34 and 5, let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. Now, isn't that interesting? Because nowhere in the Old Testament law is there a command for women to keep their mouth shut. Nowhere. So what does this mean? What law is he talking about? Not the law of Moses, but the law that was passed down through traditional rabbinical teaching that was passed off as authoritative, but not Scripture. Does that make sense to you? The rabbinical law. The customary religious law. This is this, is this, this view. Let the women keep silent in the churches, in quotation marks. They're not permitted to speak. They're not to, they're to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn anything, then let them ask their own husbands at home. What if you don't have a husband? But for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Now, this view is, that was in quotation marks. This is what was in your letter that you're asking me about. You're, this is in the letter that you're saying Women should keep silent in the church. Why? Because that is the Jewish rabbinical thought of the first century. This view says, and here's Paul's response, verse 36, paraphrase. So you're the only one 
You are the, actually the origin of the Word of God, are you? Is that what you're saying? The Word came from you? Was it only you that the Word reached? And the, one, of the, one of the thoughts behind this system of interpretation is go back into the context. Have you heard that before? Go back into the context and look at verse 31. This is about prophecy, speaking up the Word of God as it relates to a not spiritual fortune telling for God's sake, but it is speaking forth a word from the Spirit of God that brings encouragement and comfort and instruction and correction. Look at verse 31. For you can, how many? All what? So why would he contradict himself and say all can prophesy unless they're a woman? This view is, that makes no sense. And I agree with that. Well, I could go on and on with this. Are you beginning to understand that you've got to either say, no, it's just, that's just the universal deal, that's what it is, and uh, there's, it's okay. I mean, millions of believers believe it that way, and it's all right. We're going to be in heaven together. But if you look at the context from a bigger perspective, you will see that God didn't, he never saw his daughters in any less value than his sons. He gave his sons and daughters different roles, but not different value. Different roles. Can I tell you something? You may not want to hear her preach and teach every Sunday. Now, she's good. But she has told me, if you draw me up there to say something, I'm going to kill you when I get home. <laughs> but can I assure you of something? You wouldn't dare want me to be the administrative glue that holds all this together and gets every outline together and acknowledges every gift and works with accountants and board and all the lay. You wouldn't dare want me doing that. Different roles, but no different value. Do you understand where we're trying to come from here? Well, Pastor, what about that passage that said they shall be saved in childbearing? <laughs> understand that, and you know, I don't have time to go into all that, get the book. But I will tell you this, that part of the erroneous, crazy teaching of that day was that Eve and the snake were actually in partnership and all the problems belonged uh, to Adam, that Eve was actually first there. And it was a combining of pagan Greek uh, religion and throwing a little scripture in there. Isn't that what cults do today? And Paul was authoritatively talking about it. 
And they were actually talking about how, you know, you, you got to take dominion over men and even emasculate them would, would be the gist of that. And one of the best translations of that passage says it like this. That womankind, represented by Eve, shall be saved in the bearing of the child. What does that mean, Pastor? You remember when Eve sinned, Adam sinned, and God said, here's the curse of the sin. He said to Eve, you will be in subjection to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Do you know that some people in the church have actually said, see there, that's God's idea. That was the curse, not the redemption. Come on, smart one. That was the curse of sin. You've been redeemed from the curse by the blood of Jesus. Now look, what God told Eve was this. He pronounced a curse on the serpent, Satan's representative, and he said, the seed of the woman, you will bruise his heel. You will put a temporary painful lick on the seed of the woman. And we know in New Testament scripture that was prophesying of Jesus. But he, your seed, will crush his head. So the salvation and the deliverance Listen to me, daughters, my spiritual daughters and sisters. God has provided for the destruction of all of that that the devil planned against womankind. God has redeemed it through his son Jesus. And there is therefore now neither male nor female, with any advantage, neither bond nor free, you are one in Christ Jesus. Well, can we give the Lord a hand clap of praise? How we praise you, O oh God. How we thank you. How we glorify and honor your holy name. This is not my normal teaching. Some of you... Um, I uh, will be glad uh, when this little section is over. But it's my job to especially give you a grid by which you look at difficult passages of the Scripture and some tools on how to do that. It is mature people who feed themselves. It is babies who have to have somebody else spoon feed them. Let's all stand. And I will... Get on something else next week. I know you're ready. Father, thank you for your holy and mighty word. We praise you, O oh God, that all scripture is given by God. It's inspired. Holy men and women spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And it is profitable. So, Father, we say today, 
we see out of these passages that we ought to walk in diligent study of the Word. That we ought to look and seek for the context of your Word in all of our study. We also say today, Lord, that you desire order in your house. Father, when we meet corporately, we, we see from these scriptures the principle that you desire order. We see that you don't desire anybody, male or female, to be the show. It's only about your son, Jesus. We see from these scriptures, Father, that intimacy with you, you are the exact representation of the Father. May we never forget that and put everything against that grid. Now bless all of these. For those, O oh God, who have adopted a mindset of inferiority, be it from the world or the flesh or the devil or from their own parents or traditions, Pray by the blood of Jesus, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that you will draw all your sons and daughters into that special place of healing and restoration where they're broken. We ask this in the name of Jesus and all the people said. You can access more of Steve Franklin's teachings online at www.sfmin.com.